good morning, everyone. My name is Bethany, and I'll be reading the Bible today. We have a few passages, so I'd like you guys to turn to Exodus 34, um, 29, 4 to 31. This will be related to the kids' talk. Exodus 34. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant and they were afraid to come near him. Moses called to them, so Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him and he spoke to them. Second one is in Exodus chapter 34, verses 4 to 10. Exodus uh, 35, 4 to 10. Moses said to the whole Israelite community, this is what the Lord has um, commanded. From what you have, from what you have, take an offering for the Lord. Everyone who is willing is to bring to the Lord an offering of gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, goat hair, ram skins dyed red, another type of durable leather, acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the, for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and breastplate. All who are skilled among you are to come and make everything the Lord has commanded. And then the third reading is still in 35, but it's uh, verses 29 to 35. So all the Israelites, uh, sorry, all the Israelite men and women who were willing brought to the Lord free will offerings for all the work the Lord through Moses had commanded them to do. Then Moses said to the Israelites, see, the Lord has chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and he was filled with him, the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills, to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of artistic crafts. And he was given both him and Oholiab, son of Ahizamak, of the tribe of Dan, the ability to teach others. He has filled them with skill to do all kinds of work, as engravers, designers, embroiderers in blue, purple and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, and weavers, all of them skilled workers and designers. Now the final one we turn over to Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 to 38. Uh, chapter 40. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. So this week, I have been thinking a lot about glorious, beautiful, wonderful things. A week or two ago, I went for my morning run down Cobbler Creek, and I came around a corner, and I saw this glorious 
picture. This wonderful pink, purple, blue hues in the sky. And I stopped mid-run and took a photo. And I thought, as I was standing there, of Psalm 19. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. And I thought, yep, that was pretty cool. I also loved Psalm 104. Psalm 104, especially verse 14 and 15, it says, God has made bread and wine to cheer the hearts of man. I think of edible glory, like chocolate, or a Barossa Shiraz, or Whole Foods, or coffee, or pizza. It's delicious, isn't it? You know, we simply can't exist without bumping into and tripping over the glory of God on display on a daily basis. Whether it's music or art, the human body or achievements, aesthetics, colour, smells, design, the perfectly balanced spreadsheet or list if you're that sort of person. We see glorious things all around us. But, and this is where I want to draw it all today, But all those glorious things are at best for us a sign, a sign, or a GPS, think about it that way, leading us on to another glory, the true and most wonderful of all glories in the universe, God himself. And our last few chapters in the book of Exodus, they are filled with glorious things and, of course, the glory of God. This is, in fact, a complete reversal of Exodus chapter 32 from last week. When the people celebrated the glory of a cow, they reveled in their own glory. They had a party honouring themselves. Here, to end Exodus, we see God's people using their time and talents and treasures to glorify God as they respond with joy and a willing heart to build God's dwelling place here on earth. So, glorifying God, that's the name of the game today. And to glorify God, that's all about magnifying Him so He can be seen and appreciated as He truly is. It's like this. Earlier this year, some very clever people stuck the Event Horizon Telescope into Galaxy M87. Does anybody know what's in the middle of galaxy M87, by the way? Don't you know? Well, it's this. This is a black hole. It is the first ever picture of a black hole. It's 6.5 billion times larger than our sun. Right there. They stuck it in the middle. And what this did, what this telescope was able to do, was to make something that big, 6.5 billion times larger than our sun, come into view so we could see and appreciate what it really, truly is. And this is a little bit like what's going on here in Exodus. The people are bringing God's dwelling place into focus, beautifying it, so it can be a true reflection of the heavenly reality. So they can telescope this massive, glorious God to those around them in their own community and have a true sense of wonder and awe at God. They're so close. They are so close to God at the moment. 
God's going to descend in all his glory. He will be their God. They will be his people. And this is what Exodus has been about. The presence of God coming to be with his people. That's the whole point. But there's a problem. You may have picked up in the last few verses of Exodus 40 in our Bible reading, Moses says, I think I'll go hang out with God in the tent. And he walks up to the tent door and he can't go in. It ends abruptly with Moses being left outside of God's dwelling place on earth. It's a, it's a stark reminder that their sin has damaged their relationship with God in more ways they can imagine. God's glory, his presence in the middle of them, their lives rotating around him, it's life as it should be. Life we're made for too. And this matters. God's glory dwelling, being, living, revolving around that, it matters because, because in my life, and I'm sure you would agree with me too, in your life as well, we often get attached to our own glory. Too often, we get obsessed and think about how we can magnify our own life and career and reputation. When in front of me, in front of you, is a glory that won't diminish, that isn't created, and has come to save me from myself. And often we make our churches all about us and our comfort too, and what we want. But when our church is populated with people who are captivated by the awe and the glory and the majesty of God, it flows out into bedrooms and to boardrooms and to family rooms and to coffee shops. And a church that is obsessed with the glory of God, not me or you or each other, is outward looking and generous and forgiving. And that is a community that I want to be a part of. And I'm sure you do as well. So today, come with me. Let's look at glory. And let's see just how God's glory shaped his people here and why his glory, I'm going to argue, should be at the center of our life and our life should revolve around his glory too. So let's look at this. You can follow along on on the outline, which is on the hub. We have five points to work through these last few chapters of Exodus. We hit them quite quickly and then finish with how we can see the glory of God today and what that means for our life today as well. So the first thing, in the first four verses of Exodus 35, from verse 4, sorry, we see glorious things for a glorious God. Glorious things for a glorious God. So God tells Moses and the people what they need to use to build the tent of meeting. And it just drips with expensive, glorious, wonderful things, right? Like the best of creation. Spices, onyx stones, rubies, sapphires, gems, precious wood, olive oil, leather, dyed ramskins. Just these glorious parts of God's creation used to beautify and magnify God's dwelling place on earth. It just sounds wonderful. The question is, though, where will you get this? Where will they get all the stuff they need to make this tabernacle and all the bits and pieces? Well, actually, in God's kindness, they already have it. When they left Egypt, it says they plundered the Egyptians. They took from Egypt all these glorious things, and they've had them in their back pockets, walking around for about a year now to this very moment. And God says, hey, guys, why don't you just give it back and use that to build the place I'm going to inhabit. So at verse 5, and then 21 and 29, God just says, hey, everyone who's willing, 
bring the Lord an offering, gold, silver, bronze. And everyone who was willing, whose heart moved them, came and brought an offering to the Lord for the tent of meeting. All the Israelite men and women who were willing brought to the Lord free will offerings for the work of the Lord. Notice that God doesn't limit or restrict them here. It's to be given from what they have freely. There's no cap. Like, there's no number. He doesn't say, like, everyone give two gold pieces. That's what I want. He just says, from whatever you've got, give whatever you want. It'll look different for some. Just be generous. For some, generous is one silver coin. For others, it's 10,000 pieces of gold. The quantity doesn't matter. A joyful, willing heart to give to the Lord is what matters. Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians, doesn't he? Chapter 9, verse 7. God loves a cheerful giver. There's this joy and freedom in giving to the Lord for all his glory to magnify him. And so with the brief given in verse 20, the people get it. They depart. And then everyone who's willing, everyone who's able, everyone who's got the bits and pieces there, they bring it to the Lord. They saw this glorious work. They saw the glory of God on display from Moses' face. And they responded, driven by the desire to glorify God. Notice, it wasn't God, uh, but Moses' eloquence. wasn't his rhetorical tricks or linguistic traps that he used to compel them. He didn't bait and switch them. He didn't say, you will get God's favor upon you if you give all your rubies to him. Give money to God to get something from him. Actually, he just said, guys, here's God's glory. What do you reckon? And that was all they needed to give. But not only did God provide the precious materials, it goes further than that. He even gave them the skilled craftsmen and all the abilities, which is the next point, the gloriously skilled for a glorious God. All who are skilled among you come and make everything in verse 10. And then towards the end of the chapter, verse 30 onwards, every skilled woman spun with her hands blue, purple, scarlet yarn or fine linen. The Lord chose Bezael, filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, understanding, knowledge, with all kinds of skills to make artistic designs for working gold and silver, bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood. Everyone who is skilled in any way has something to offer here. And then we meet this one person who's singled out, and we see a remarkable thing. It's incredible. The Lord chose him and filled him with his spirit. Why? Why would God do that? For making God's place beautiful. Aesthetics. They're not unimportant in God's economy, you know. God's creative. God is interesting. And he equips people in that way too. People who think about art or layout, design, how things look and feel, they have, you have much to contribute to God's kingdom, you know. And what's more, the phrase the Spirit of God mentioned here has only occurred once before in the entire Bible here. Where have you heard the Spirit of God filled before? Back in Genesis 1 verse 2, the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. The creative force of God who made the whole world is now filling and indwelling these people to beautify God's place. After all, the tabernacle is a microcosm of creation. It's an earthly representation of the heavenly reality. How wonderful is that? But incredible that 
they just heard about God coming to live in a tent, and this is the response they had, right? Incredible that that had this effect on the people. They're stirred and they give generously. In fact, so much so, Moses says towards the end of uh, verse 36, in verse 6, Stop! (laughs) You're being too generous, guys. We have enough. Over an abundance of stuff. Ease back a bit. But this is, in fact, the biblical pattern that nothing motivates worship of God more than catching a glimpse of his glory. In Isaiah 60, verse 5 to 7, Isaiah looks forward to a time when the nations bring their best, their economic success, if you will, to God. Not one nation like here, but all the nations coming across the sea, celebrating the glory of God with glorious things. And that fits well into the next point. A glorious work now for a glorious God. And the remainder of Exodus from 36 to 39 is filled with this list of what they made. It's a pragmatic account. The people did the work. 45 times we have the word they made. Again, that phrase isn't used very much except in the Genesis account when God made. Now the people are making. Under God, united for his glory. Back in Genesis 11, Tower of Babel, the people made sinfully for their own glory. But now, for the first time, for God's glory. And then it was done. Finished. And then what sounds like the Garden of Eden once more, Moses looks at everything, he walks around and goes, hmm, good job, everyone. And then he blessed the work. He gave his approval like Genesis 2-2, and God blessed his work of creation as well. And just how Genesis tells us God walked and lived in his garden, God now comes to inhabit this space as well. Look at the next point. God comes to dwell in all his glory. So it's one year, almost to the day now, when they left Egypt. This is New Year's Day for God's people. A new life under God's loving rule and care. It's now coming to a glorious beginning as God comes to dwell in the tent. And the cloud in verse 34 that was over Mount Sinai shifts and moves and plonks itself inside this little tent, custom built in this space just for God. Do you know what that means? They have a portal of Mount Sinai. A portal of Mount Sinai going with them. God will go with them, live among them. They're so close. Imagine Damien walks out one morning and he walks past the tent of meeting and between the bits of canvas and goat skin, God's glory just is there. And he comes home from work and he walks past and God's glory is just there. And then Moses thinks, I'll go in like I did on the mountain and hang out with God. But he can't. He's stopped. So close, but yet so far. Moses can't go into that place. Because the question that we haven't quite got the answer of yet in all of these chapters is, what does the tabernacle do? What does this tent actually do? Yes, God dwells there, but what's the purpose of it? As in, how does it function in the life of God's people? And that's where Leviticus comes in. How do you live with a holy God dwelling among you? How does life look different when God occupies your home and your space? How do you enter into God's glory? And there Leviticus goes on. The start of Leviticus says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses. So Moses is stopped. And he says, Oh, I can't go in. 
And then God speaks to him from inside the tent to Moses who's outside and tells him, here's what you have to do to come in. But the next Exodus also ends with God leading them with his glory. The final three verses drive us forward. They can only move when God moves. When God's glory lifts and moves, they move as his people. But when, they, when he stops, they stop. Meaning God will never leave them. He will always go before them. And it's a wonderful way to end the book, isn't it? Their entire life of wandering and walking and living and moving is now directed by and towards this glory of God. One scholar says so aptly, and I quote him, the book of Exodus opened with misery and oppression, but now it closes by assuring God's people that day and night, the divine spirit hovers over them, guiding them and controlling their destiny. Isn't that fitting? And that is the book of Exodus. But I want to finish with two points, which I think are very fitting for us today. Just as God's glory ends with, sorry, Exodus ends with God's glory coming down to be with his people, we now catch a glimpse of the glory of God in Christ. Many years later, God sent his glory down again. Not in a cloud, not into a building, but in the person of Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus came to open the way for us to live with the most glorious one in the universe, welcoming us into God's very presence. And he takes this idea of God dwelling in a tent and he just he kicks it out the park. Like, the ball goes over the field and over the carpet parking lot and just further and further. He brings it to a whole new level because Colossians 1 in verse 19 says, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things on earth and in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. God's dwelling with us, it happened through Jesus' blood on the cross, creating peace between us and God so we're not stopped from entering God's glory or magnifying him. I mean, just consider the verse on your screen, this powerfully short verse from Paul in Romans. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And, are, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Do you notice how Paul links God's glory with our fall and our addiction to our own glory? Which is why we need someone to justify and redeem us from missing God's glory running around our whole life trying to make up for it with our own little life. You see, we're far too easily pleased with little scraps of glory day by day. As good as they are, they're just like the GPS showing us something more just around the corner. And it's when we catch a glimpse of the glory of God in Jesus with him as our Lord and Saviour that we, like God's people here, are motivated to use our skills and time and talents and treasures for his glory, not my own. And this is my last point to finish with. We can now use our time and talents and treasures for the glory of God. You see, when Jesus is Lord and Savior, every morning he gives us grace so we live in a new glorious way. Echoing the words of 1 Corinthians 10, 31, so wherever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. 
In Romans 3, we had fallen short of God's glory, but in Jesus, we're now able to magnify God each and every day from the smallest thing to the very biggest thing. But it works very differently than Exodus 35 to 40. Today, the paradigm shifted. I'm not going to stand here and say, please give me your gold and your silver and your rubies so we can build the house of God. 1 Peter actually says, you are the house of God, a living stone in whom God dwells himself. And it's actually because of God's generosity to us, not my generosity to God, that we now see what a generous life looks like. Uh, look at 2 Corinthians 2, uh, sorry, 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. You see, Jesus flips it upside down. The Bible's solution to stinginess is a reorientation to the gospel and the generosity of Christ who poured out his wealth for us. He died to kill my stingy, hard, hoarding heart who's addicted to my own glory and fame. And instead, he lay aside all the riches of heaven so that we could be made rich beyond imagination. Not with power, not with money, not with success, but by being sons and daughters of God himself with God as our treasure. And when we realize this, when you catch a glimpse of the glory of God in Jesus, your time and talents and treasures, they take on a different perspective. Here's what it might mean. It means, yes, some of you may give gold and silver and rubies or a bank transfer. But you do it for God's glory. You do it to build his kingdom. You do it to give in a way that shows God's care for you because you realize that having money is not the most important thing because you have God. And everything you have, you want to give for further God's kingdom. It means as a church, we don't ever want to amass wealth or riches. I spoke to someone this week and he said that the church should, think about this, he was just making a comment, that we should really operate in the red the whole year. Because he said if we're in the black, that means we haven't spent the money we have on mission. It's just a way to think about it, isn't it? And it's true, though. We don't want to amass both. We want to take the glory of God found in Jesus to Golden Grove and to Adelaide and to all of Australia and beyond so they can have Jesus as their Lord and Savior too. Or maybe you're creative and you see things a certain way and you love color and aesthetics. Well, please, please don't waste that on a little glory. What would it look like for you to be thinking and designing all for the glory of God, not your career or your reputation, but to show off his glory in all you do? Or you teach people, and people love your eloquence and your words and how you're just so clever and can think on your feet. God has built you that way, to think that way, to be that way. Wonderful. How can you glorify God in that, in your, in your workplace, the bulk of your week, where you will spend more of your life than almost anywhere else? Are you using your time and talents and treasures to show off his glory in how you write emails or interact with the boss or treat those below you? Or parents and grandparents? Do you live every day as to make God look beautiful and attractive to the lives of your kids? Even if you have big grown-up kids, 
Are you helping them appreciate the bigger joy than the toy catalogue that comes out now, this time of year? Or the ice cream after school once a week? Are you showing them a better glory than that, pointing them onwards to the glory they're made for? So just like the telescope from the very start used to bring us the black hole 6.5 billion times larger than our sun so we can appreciate it and, and enjoy it, will you join me this week in telescoping God's glory to others to show off his majesty with all your time and talents and treasures, all for the glory of God. Because I know that's how I want to live, and I hope you do as well. Let's pray. Our great, glorious God, we acknowledge that you are more beautiful and attractive and glorious and majestic and marvelous than the black hole all those years away, then my own reputation, then the sun shining down early morning, then food or love or music or a perfectly laid out spreadsheet. Father God, all those wonderful things in our life, all the glorious things we can appreciate, simply show us there is a far more lasting, wonderful glory on the horizon, which is you. In our own hearts and minds, Lord, as we've looked through Exodus, help us to have a glimpse of the glory of God in Christ that we can dwell with you through him, his death and resurrection. Be forgiven for faulty glory searching, but made new to finally sit and enjoy and dwell and magnify and show off and all those words, you. So Father God, what does it look like for us to do that this week? Show us, remind us, help us not to be too attached to things in this life that we miss you in the daily rhythm of life. Thank you, Jesus, you forgive us. And you go before us. Amen.